You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Professor David Kirkfilp, along with Dr. Esteban Marconi. That's right. Marconi will be here any second. He's been on assignment, but he's going to be here any second. And here he comes. Dr. Esteban, we should mention that people should be going to musicbiz101wp.com, signing up for our newsletter so that they know what we're all about and all the different radio shows that are be coming on. And then should we give thanks, Dr. Esteban? Okay. There we go. We're going to give some thanks. We're going to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And our thanks, our big, warm, soft kiss thanks go out to Christine. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped so many professionals all over the world, internationally and nationally, manage their investments, plan out for the retirement. When somebody like you is looking uh, looking and thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think about the Forefront Group and go to christine.they at forefront.com. We also have with us today Jenna Vital. Jenna is a student in the music business program at the University of William Patterson that three years in a row has been ranked by Bill.Board as one of the best in the United States. Jenna, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am doing quite well. Uh, Jenna is here. This is part of a summer class that we're doing. And in the summer class, part of what she had to do was gather somebody, connect with somebody who she didn't know and bring them on board for an interview for our radio show. And Jenna, who is our guest going to be today? Today we have Brittany Hodak. She is an international keynote speaker and award-winning entrepreneur. As an expert in creating loyal superfans for your brand, she teaches leaders to cure apathy by harnessing the power of superfandom. Ah. Woo! Thank you. First, can you explain what the superfan company is and what you did for it? And then can you talk about what your inspirations were for creating the company? So I have always been obsessed with the phenomenon of fandom. My first job was as a radio station mascot when I was 16 years old. And so I had sort of an upfront view of all of these fans who were, you know, at concerts and all of these live events, interacting with the artists that they loved. And I just was so fascinated by that. And that led me um, down the path of an entertainment career once you teach a a 16 or 17 year old that they can get paid to work in music. It's very hard for them to want to do a quote unquote normal job from that point forward. So I was sort of set on the path of entertainment. So every job I ever had was working in the music industry. And when I was in college, I had an idea for creating like the ultimate super fan package for music retail experience because I was a college rep for a major record company and this was like late 2003, 2004. Um, So, you know, sort of early in the download freak out moment when the music industry was losing hundreds of millions of dollars year over year and nobody knew what to do. So we would have these calls as, as interns every week with a different department head. And the goal of the, these calls on paper was for the department 
had to teach us a little bit about, you know, marketing one week and then sales the next week and then legal the next week. So at the end of the semester, you kind of had this broad overview of all of the different departments and you could say, I want to do X or I want to do Y. But what was happening because the music industry was just tanking, every single call was these executives just railing on the music industry and all of these kids who were downloading music illegally and everybody was just saying, go into any other industry, pick anything else. You guys are still in college, choose a different career, get into movies, be a doctor. And it was just so um, frustrating to me. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, so much doom and gloom. So after like the second or third call, I'd said, you know, if, if the problem is people aren't buying physical music anymore, people aren't buying CDs anymore, why don't you guys just make a configuration people care about? Like if your competitors are, are, are digital downloads, create something that's better than a digital download. The reason nobody wants to go buy a CD is because it's not offering any more value. It's like an inconvenient way to the same end, which is putting the music on your digital device to listen to it anyway. So um, I started thinking about what would like an ultimate super fan package look like? What would something be that would make me want to go spend money on something where the music was the value add rather than the central proposition? So I started thinking about all the different merch items that you could package for retail. Um, all the exclusive content to make the packaging as great as the music part, right? So can you create a commemorative book? Can you create a collector's edition magazine? So I started thinking about all of these things. And as my undergraduate thesis wrote the business plan for the company that became the super fan company. Yeah. So after I graduated, I went to go work for a division of Sony um, where I tried to kind of get this idea brought to life. And then I went to go work at an advertising agency where again, I was sort of sharing this plan saying like, guys, I have this idea that's going to help the music industry. And um, nobody really listened. But I had made a friend in a buyer at Walmart because when I worked at Sony, my job was to do all of the retail marketing campaigns. And my accounts were Walmart, Target, Best Buy, like all the big boxes, plus a lot of smaller record stores. So I did that for almost four years. I learned a ton about retail and distribution and marketing. And so after I left Sony to go work at this agency, I stayed in contact with all of my buyers and the Walmart buyer in particular was really intrigued by this idea. And I was trying to get it going in the agency. And finally she said, I know this is your idea. I know you're the one who's been championing this for years. Why don't you just start your own business? And if you start a company to pursue this idea, if you can get record labels to come on board, I will be happy to give you a vendor number and buy this product from you. I don't need it to come from a big company. I'm more than happy to give you a vendor number. And I never really thought about being an entrepreneur that was kind of the first push to where I said, well, you know, maybe I can start a business. Maybe it's not that hard. I literally Googled how to start a business. I'd never taken an entrepreneurship class. I never thought about starting my own company one time ever. Um, and kind of that day in that moment when I Googled it, I was like, oh, this doesn't sound so hard. I should just do this. So I went home that day, told my husband I was going to start a business, launched the company. It was called Zine Pack at the time because Zine Pack was the name of the configuration that we came up with for this magazine package that had the, the merchandise and sort of the super fan experience. Um, and then after a little while, we rebranded the name of the company to the Superfan Company. And I ran the business for eight years and absolutely loved it. You know, it was such a great learning experience because when you start a business, a lot of times you're focused on like one thing. And what happens is as you do a good job on that, your customers want to hire you for more things. So people come to you and they say, well, I'm not going to have another album release for two years, but can you help me with my tour? Can you help me launch my fan club? Can you help me with this movie project? that I'm doing. And of course, as a new entrepreneur, your answer is always, yes, of course I can do that. You know, oh, we were just thinking about expanding into that vertical. So funny, you should ask us to do it. And then you like scramble and figure out how to do it. We started going down all of these different tangential paths and the company grew and was doing so well and, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what I really discovered is that I loved the back end of it. I loved the figuring out why, like why are people super fans of one artist and don't care at all about another artist? What is it that makes people so engaged or to see their identity so wrapped up in one thing and not in this other thing? And so I started really digging into the why, and that led me down the road of doing a lot of consulting. So all of a sudden, the clients that originally were just hiring us to create these really great packages and you know write the editorial and come up with the design and do kind of like agency style work, were now all of a sudden asking me to do consulting on a retainer basis. So it became my job to sort of like pull back the curtains, look behind the scenes and help 
before these artists launch to say, what are the, what are the trends that we can find? What are the common factors that we need to be doing to create these super fans, to make people care about this artist? Because in the music industry, where the majority of our clients were, it costs easily seven figures to launch a new artist. If you're talking about pop radio or country radio, it's more. It's, it, it's probably one and a half to $2 million investment by the time you're done just to figure out if someone is going to be popular or not, which is a huge amount of money. That's a giant bet to place. So the more work you can do up front, the more you can kind of safeguard your investment and figure out some of these things early, the better off everybody is. Mm -hmm. So again, I started to do a lot of that work, which led to a lot of speaking. And the speaking was something that I really loved and really discovered that the same application that I was using in the music industry, the same steps that I was taking people through had all of these broad applications in other industries because I would go speak at an event that would have entertainment people, but then also people from all of these other walks of lives who were sending me these emails, you know, or calling me a few months afterwards saying, Hey, I took this process that you taught us and I implemented it and my sales are up 35% or I, I took what you taught us and I've now implemented it across my entire sales team and we're having our best quarter ever and I was like this is so fascinating so I started to really study and dig in more and look at some of the the principles that I had discovered worked really well in entertainment and saw how universal they were so about a year and a half ago I exited the super fan company I, I sold my equity to two of my founding partners um, because it, it was just became too much to try to do both at the same time and I realized that I really really loved the speaking and the research and the consulting part of it. And so now that's what I'm focused on. And I still occasionally work with entertainment clients, which I love, but the majority of my clients are, are all over the board. So I'm working with people in hospitality and mortgage and real estate and healthcare and finance. And it's just been a really fun challenge to um, sort of see how, how similar all of these different worlds are in the application of creating super fans, which are in short customers who are creating more customers for you. It was a very long answer. <laughs> so I just want to go back a little bit to what you said before about how people were coming to you and asking you to do things like they weren't uh, releasing an album, but they were going on tour. So they wanted your help with that. At the beginning, did you find any difficulties trying to convince people to work with a new company? So it's a lot easier to make a cold call when you have an industry giant like Walmart in your corner. And because they had really stepped up and said, we believe in you, we believe in this product. And if it's a successful product, we want to offer it to Walmart customers exclusively. So what that allowed us to do was make calls to these, it was record companies at the beginning. We uh, later expanded into working with movie studios and video game companies and sports teams. But at the beginning, for the first two years, it was almost exclusively record labels. And what we were able to do was offer them a way to sell tens of thousands of units of ancillary product into Walmart. So this was in addition to what they were already selling on the standard edition of their release. We said, hey, we have a way where we're going to do all the work. We're going to interview your artist. You're gonna, we're going to create all this content for your approval. All you have to do is say yes. We're even going to go get a brand partner to help offset the cost of creating this package. So what it looks like for you is a few hours of your artist time to be involved helping make this product um, some some of your team's time to help oversee the sales part but we're really doing 97% of the heavy lifting you guys are gonna ship an extra 50 to 100,000 units of product which is going to you know equate to, to somewhere between like 50 and a few hundred thousand dollars of additional revenue that you would not have without us doing this so that became a pretty easy a pretty easy call to make we didn't have um, we didn't really have a, a, a problem finding clients. It was almost like too many people were coming to us and we had to do the quality control to say, you know, Hey, we love the fact that you want to give us 12 of your titles, but we don't have the capacity, nor do we think there's market interest to support all 12 of these artists. Let's pick the best five and create really amazing packages for those five so that we're not saturating the marketplace. What did you create? What are some examples of this ancillary products that you created? So we were creating what we were calling super fan packages or zine pack versions of album releases. So we worked with a huge variety of people, everybody from pop artists like Katy Perry and Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift to heritage artists like Kiss and George Strait. Kids Bop brand was an early client of ours. We worked with every American Idol winner for several years, uh, several other sort of like 
reality TV type figures to create what was essentially the deluxe version of an album that they had coming out. So for instance, when we worked with Katy Perry uh, for her album Prism, you could buy the standard edition or if you chose to do so, Walmart was the exclusive retailer for our deluxe edition or our super fan edition package that instead of just being the CD had a hundred page magazine with all these exclusive photos and quotes and interviews that you could only get in our package. Five or six little merchandise items that we put together with Katie. So she's really into nail art. So one of the things were these little nail decals that you could get that had, I mean, there were like 50 different nail decals with these icons that we put together with Katie for every song on the record. So the only way you could get it was was in this package and uh, there was like a patch I forget all the things that were in it um, and so then we would work with the artist so in Katie's um, example we shot a really fun Walmart commercial that we offset the ad buy by bringing in a third-party sponsor that was a headphone company that we helped advertise not only in the package but also in a big corrugate display in the Walmart stores uh, and we shot this really fun Walmart commercial that aired nationally where Katie was like a delivery person she was dressed up in a delivery outfit. She rolled up to a Walmart store. You saw her unloading the, the zine packs off of uh, the, the big truck that was branded and into the store. So coming up with these integrated marketing campaigns that were centered around one product that people could buy, that was delivering a deluxe experience or a super fan experience. Were you dealing directly with the label people or with the like special markets division of the companies? Um, so it was directly with the label people. So um, in most record companies, special markets work with either products that are 18 months or older or with non-trad retailers. So when you're talking about selling something into like a Bed Bath & Beyond or a mall store, sometimes a Cracker Barrel. But because these were frontline releases and we were doing them at Walmart stores, we were dealing directly with the, with the labels. And also because that's where my relationships were and where the, the Walmart relationships were. So in a lot of these instances, uh, probably it should have gone like the ask should have started somewhere else but I learned very early on as an entrepreneur that the warmest introduction you can get to the highest person is where you should start like rather than trying to start at perhaps quote-unquote the right person and have it go seven steps up the flagpole if you can go from the top down so that there's fewer opportunities for gatekeepers to say no that's a really good way to do it and because of that a lot of times honestly we would go straight to artist managers and say hey do you want are you into this idea cool here's the proposal we put together let's take it to the label together and then you know it's obviously a lot harder for a label to say no when you've got an enthusiastic artist manager or a brand that perhaps Perhaps the artist already works with or has wanted to work with who said hey I want to come on board with this to help you guys get the display in stores and to help offset some of the costs. These were day and date so you said uh, Katy Perry's Prism so when Prism came out the new release was this coming out at the same time or would this come out four or six weeks later to kind of pump up that release in the Walmart stores? All of the new releases were day and date. So every time we were working with the front line, it was, it was day and date, but we also did a lot of really fun catalog promotions where, uh, for instance, we worked with you and me and we had on one day, gosh, I think it was like eight titles that came out that were part of one of their branded, um, you know, catalog divisions where it was, it wasn't 20th century masters. I forget what the brand was of that particular catalog, but we had all of these come, come out on the same day so that that way we owned the entire corgate. So there was an entire corgate and it was like Johnny Cash and Patsy Cline and the temptations and all of these other titles that were, you know, catalog titles, but being repackaged for the first time in this way that included never before seen photos that we went back and licensed from like 30, 40, 50 years ago, working with the original photographers, um, interviews with the family members. So there was all of this cool stuff inside to, to sort of make this a package that um, was very giftable. If perhaps you already owned all of the music or you had downloaded all the music, it became something that um, a lot of times what we would hear, especially when we worked with sort of the heritage artists is these people were buying them because they were great introductions for their kids. So even when we were doing a frontline release for a band like the Beach Boys or Kiss. People were saying, this is so great. I'm buying one not only for me, but also because I've been trying for years to get my kid interested in Kiss. And this is such a great way to do it because now all of a sudden it's visual, it's interactive. It's got all this fun stuff inside of it. And so whether you're an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old, you can sit down and have fun with this package and have a, a greater appreciation than if you were just streaming it on Spotify. 
I was just going to say uh, earlier, you had already been recognized by Advertising Age and, and so on with all the kudos that you got before you started the company. I had been recognized by Billboard as part of their 30 under 30 list before I launched the company. And that was primarily for my work at Walmart and then also for a huge campaign. So after I left Sony, I was at an entertainment marketing agency where I was doing branded entertainment and basically advice. So I was doing big tour sponsorships with brand. I was controlling probably close to $10 million a year in entertainment spend for, for things like you know, tour sponsorships and um, endorsement deals and sync licenses across a portfolio of brands. And that was the 30 under 30 recognition for Billboard. But then all of the others, Inc. and Ad Age and, and all of the others came as recognition for CEO and co-founder of Superfan. Ah, right. So you had some, obviously, some pedigree behind you when you were talking to clients. I'd spent a lot of time building up relationships. And that's something I always say to young people is, if there's one thing that you can invest your time in, make it building relationships. Mm -hmm. Do the best job you can of beating everyone you can, staying in touch with everyone you can, and just being the kind of person that people want to help out. Um, so that when you reach out to them, A, you're not, the first time you're reaching back out to them isn't to ask for a favor when you need something, make sure you're actually being the kind of person who is curious and interested in providing value. But so that when you do reach out and need something, they are, they are excited to pick up the phone. They're not just going to do it, but they say, oh, great, this is, this is my opportunity to help this person who's been so helpful to me over the past years or months or whatever the time period is. Mm -hmm. So because we had, we had built up a lot of that sort of social capital, it was easy easy to pick up the phone and say, help, can you, can you connect me with someone here or, or, or help me do this? And yeah. we definitely called in a lot of favors as, as all successful entrepreneurs do early on. And that's so much of it. I mean, when you talk about lessons from, uh, for people listening to this and you mentioned it earlier is, is that the warm, you know, uh, reaching out to the people who you've already met or you have something there or getting the introduction, it makes it so much easier than the cold call, which can be a disaster for somebody's emotions. You know, if, if the first know or hang up that they get. Well, and I think reframing that too. I mean, we did a lot of cold calling. I certainly don't want to give the indication that everything was an easy yes. I mean, there was a lot of begging. There were there were so many no's, so much rejection, especially on the brand side, because I had a little bit of experience in the brand marketing world from the agency work that I had done, but I didn't, it wasn't like I had a Rolodex and could just like pick up the phone and call any brand manager. So it was a lot of, you know, trying to find people on LinkedIn, trying to see how I was connected with people. And there were a lot of no's. And it was hard because I'd never really had a sales job before. I'd never been in a position of, um, you know, they call it smiling and dialing where you're just sort of like begging for dollars. And so what I did after probably, we were probably like five or six months in the business at the time, um, I created a no chart. And it was literally a chart that said, someone told me no. Like I wrote it in a Sharpie on a piece of paper and drew a grid. And every time somebody told me no, I gave myself a star, like, you know, how they award kindergartners for like going to the potty or whatever. <laughs> like it was literally like a little reward chart. And I gave myself a star because I said, you know, this is really something to celebrate. It feels negative in the moment. But even though this person told me no, A, a no today is not a no forever. So this could be someone who works with me in the future. B, this is somebody who didn't have any idea who I was, who my company was, what we were doing before I picked up the phone and called them. And they gave me the gift of their attention long enough to understand a little bit about who I am and what we're doing. So I'm going to be floating around in their mind and perhaps the right time is going to happen later since the right time is not now. So I tried to turn it into like a celebratory thing instead of, you know, a negative thing like, yay, this many more people know who I am, know what I'm doing. And then every time I got to 10 no's, I bought myself a present. <laughs> so every time I completed the row, it was like, I just got my 10th rejection. I'm going to walk, we, um, our office was right across the street from the Empire State Building. So right there in Midtown with um, all kinds of great shopping. So I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to walk over and buy myself a new pair of shoes, or I'm going to go buy myself a dress, or I'm going to do something to acknowledge the fact that I worked really hard. And even though these 10 people told me no, that's 10 more people that might tell me yes in the future, because the next time I reach out, it's not going to be a cold call. It's going to be a introduction. That is amazing because I did sales for many years and lots of cold calling and got lots of literally slamming the phone in my ear, like not even saying no, just hanging up on me, you know? And I think the way, like you just said, you reframed it and you built in, I'm going to earn these no's. And once I get there, I'm going to get something good for me. You know, I think that is an awesome way. So 
because you get into motivational speaking. Do you talk to salespeople? And is that one of the things you talk about? Because that to me is amazing. I've never heard, I've been to a lot of motivational speakers when I was a salesperson. Nobody ever said that. And I think that is incredible. Oh, thank you. No, you know, I do, I do talk about sales, but I talk about more about um, customer service and customer experience. So I don't even know if I've ever told that story before. It's a great, <laughs> great story. It really is great. But thank you. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was in the, like, I'm not going to lie. Like there were some days that were so hard and a lot of times like we, so we, a funny thing to admit, um, we were right above a McDonald's. And so a lot of days, every time I got one, no, I went downstairs and got a hot fudge Sunday. <laughs> so 10, 10 no's was like a, was like a real present. But on days where it was hard, every no was like, you know what? I know it's only 9.45, but I earned it. I'm going to go get an ice cream sundae. I know I go down to McDonald's and get an ice cream sundae for a dollar um, every time somebody told me no. So I think, I think reframing is, is a great thing to do. Um, what I mainly speak about, like the framework that I've created for turning people into super fans and creating the kind of customer experience that sort of makes price irrelevant and makes people want to work with you period like they're not even looking at other competitors they say i've got this this person or this company or this product like this is my thing and i don't even care what else is out there and they're out there recommending you to friends um, and really doing the hard job of bringing the referrals to you because as you guys know referrals are are absolutely the best thing for any salesperson because they're so much easier to close they cost so much less money they take so much less time and energy and they're more fun right it's more fun to answer the phone to somebody who wants to buy something from you than to call someone and ask them if they want to give you money. Um, so, so that's what I talk about. Um, and most of my audiences are our sales and marketing audiences. And it's all about how to go through this five-step framework to create super fans for your product, service, or business. Did you find that any of those companies that said no to you at first, did any of them come back to you after you were a more established company? Oh yeah, a ton. And we, after about probably three years, we were on Shark Tank. I got a call from a producer inviting us to be on Shark Tank. And after that, all kinds of people that had said no to us all of a sudden um, wanted to say yes to us. And the other thing too is, I think a lot of times people hear no and they think it's no forever. And I am a big believer in no but. You know, like, but what happens next? And what about next time? And so I got very creative. Like there were some artists that I was like, I want to work with this artist and we are going to get to a yes or a restraining order. And it's going to go one direction <laughs> or the other. But I am like balls to the wall until one or the other happens. And thankfully there were never any restraining orders. Um, there were some people who politely were like, it's going to be a no. Like this is a hard no until you hear from me otherwise. But there were a lot of other people that, you know, it took five, six, seven times of saying, listen, this is why this is a really good idea. Like, let me just take you through this from the standpoint of your audience, from the standpoint of this fan base. Let me tell you why you need this. And because I always saw my job as like a fan advocate, you know, I was not working for the artist or for the label. I was working for the fan. I was working with the artist and with the label to deliver something for the fan that I wanted when I was a 15 year old that I didn't have. And because of that, it sort of emboldened me a little bit and made me feel empowered and going back over and over and over again. And I mean, there were some, like one time I sent it, like I, I emailed and called this guy so many times and he was just totally ghosting me. I sent a postcard and said, I just wanted to check in with you and see how not responding to my emails has been going for you. <laughs> and I mailed him and he called me and he goes like, you're hilarious. Like what is so important? You have three minutes of my time. And so it's doing, you know, things like that. Like I sent people ridiculous gifts in the mail, um, gifts for their children, gifts for their spouses, uh, knock, knock jokes one time. There, so there, I, again, I, I don't, I should not tell the story, but I'm going to tell it because I think there are probably a lot of young kids listening that can maybe learn from this. Um, this, this was like 10 years ago. So, you know, a slightly different world, but not super different world. Um, there was a buyer that I was trying to get in front of that. I was like, just give me five minutes at South by Southwest. I know you're going to be there. I will drop anything. I will be there anytime, anywhere, just five minutes. Nope. Can't do it. Well, what about this day? What about the last day? Nope. I'm flying back that day. So I knew where this buyer lived and it wasn't in one of the major cities. So 
I looked and I saw that there were only a few different options that they could be taking and they were definitely going to be connecting through Dallas, right? They were going to be going from Austin to Dallas because there was no direct flight. And I was like, nobody's going to fly through Charlotte or Atlanta or LA. Like they're taking one of these connections through Dallas if they're leaving on this day. So I bought tickets on the two flights that it could have been. And then I called both of the airlines and pretended to be like a flustered assistant. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I totally messed up. My boss is so-and-so. I'm so sorry. I've messed up his seat. Can you, can you just tell me what is the seating assignment? Found out what seat he was sitting in, got the seat one person over. And guess what? I had that person's undivided attention for 40 minutes on a flight from Austin to Dallas. And I was like, what a weird coincidence. Like, what are the odds? And I was connecting through Dallas because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm flying home to see my family in Oklahoma. I'm not going back to New York. Like, had the whole backstory totally worked out. Became friends with the guy. He was like, oh, I'm so sorry that I blew you off. So looking for ways, again, I'm not advocating, like, that's probably sounds like super creepy and almost stalker level. But like I said, we were like, it's going to be a yes or it's going to be a restraining order. We are going to try so hard because we're working to create these, these experiences and these engaging products for these fans. So looking for creative ways to force someone to be in front of you when you can do it. I mean, I've like, I've had friends that, you know, were like, it's so much easier now than it was 10 years ago. Like I do all that work. Now you can just like watch people's Instagram feeds and see where they're at and like show up at their favorite coffee shop five days in a row until you happen to be there at the right time. Like it's a lot easier to make those serendipitous moments sort of happen now than it was 10 years ago. But that's the kind of, that's the kind of drive that you need to have to say, I'm dedicated to making this happen, whatever it takes. And then following up on the whatever it takes up right into the point to where it gets creepy. And maybe sometimes a little bit over that line. That should be a book, by the way. Um, <laughs> either a yes or a restraining order. <laughs> That'd be a great title for a book. I love it. Maybe that'll be the sales keynote I'll write next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I owned up to it after the fact. So he, he, he knows now we've become friends. Yeah. But a lot of people are so scared, you know, to try that. And a lot of people, yeah, just like, um, especially the younger people, they're a texting, they're a DM generation. They are not a, let's have a conversation, let's meet face to face. And so what you're doing is 100%, you know, it's a 180 from what a lot of college students have been brought up to be. So that's, that's a really cool thing. Yeah. And you know, it's, it can be, if you're used to communicating primarily via text, it can be hard to, to get on the phone or to get in front of somebody. But what you've always got to do is use the form of communication that's most comfortable to your customer or potential right. customer, or that's going to break through the noise and get you noticed. So that's the most important part. And I have like, I've done tens of thousands of dollars of business in the past year speaking through Instagram. Like there's people who want to just DM me on Instagram and like, that's not my favorite. I would certainly rather talk to these people or email with them like a regular person rather than having to manage Facebook messages and LinkedIn messages and Instagram DMs. Like there's so many different points of contact, but if somebody wants to give me money, like I will go to wherever they are. Like you want to book me exclusively through LinkedIn message. Great. I'm happy to take your dollars. You want everything to be through Facebook messenger okay, cool. Like weird, but fine. Like I'm happy to come to your event. And I have booked events with people through every single channel possible, right? People who, um, and a lot of times it's referrals. So somebody saw me and they're like, I want her to come do my event. And so I don't care how they're communicating with me. You want to do it all through Morse code. Cool. I'll learn Morse code. Give me your dollars. Like you need to, instead of trying to make everybody, um, assimilate into whatever your preferred system is, make yourself flexible enough to meet everybody else where they are. And even though it takes more time, it makes it easier for people to work with you. And the number one thing that you can do to be successful, not only in sales, but in any area of life is make it easy to work with you. Like be flexible, be easy, be fun, be the person that people are excited. I, I have um, a philosophy that Again, this sounds, it sounds very like sales motivational keynote but I, I don't normally talk about this in, in my keynotes because I'm talking about creating super fans. But I'm a big believer that every interaction you have with somebody, so every time you talk to somebody on the phone or you meet with them in person or you do a Zoom call, whatever it is, they're going to leave that interaction with you as either a net negative, net positive, or net neutral. Their day is either going to get better or worse 
from the time they spent with you, or it's going to just be a nothing burger and it's going to be totally the same. So do whatever you can do to make it a net positive for them. If you can make people feel better when they leave a conversation with you than when they started it, whether that's an email, whether that's an inner life, whatever it is, if you can make them feel better when they leave than when they arrived, you've now made their day better. And when you make somebody's day better, again and again and again, like you're making their life better, right? And what better calling, what cooler thing to know that even if you go to bed that night and you didn't close a deal or you didn't, you know, accomplish whatever it was that you were doing, you know that you're working toward it and you helped make the days of 12 people better, you know, because you never know what somebody is going through. You never know what meeting they just came from or what bad news they just got or what happened right before they came into you. So if you can approach every situation with somebody as this person, probably got some hard stuff going on right now I want to make the time that they spend with me whether again it's in real life video email text message doesn't matter I want them to feel better when they leave this than they did coming in you're going to build super fans around you just like personal people who are advocates for you and you're going to find that you're successful over time how would you suggest leaving that net positive impression when people are communicating through LinkedIn or Facebook Messenger or Instagram so everybody wants to feel appreciated. They want to feel validated. They want to feel heard. There's a really great quote from Oprah where she says, um, you know, she's interviewed tens of thousands of people and they all wanted the same thing. They wanted to feel seen, heard, acknowledged, understood. So really it's about listening. Um, I mentioned before I have the, that five step framework that I use. There's an acronym super. It's for me selfishly, it's easy to remember because you know, I'm creating super fans, but the S stands for start with your story. The U is understand your customer story. The P is personalize and connect. The E is exceed expectations and the R is repeat. And that's sort of the framework for over time, how you create these lasting customer experiences and customer journeys. But the two that are most important for creating that net positive and you know, making these good experiences is understanding your customer story, right? So a lot of times people don't listen with the intent to hear and make people's story better. They, they listen with the intent to just respond, right? Like you're just trying to like get to your next thing. Take the time to get to know the people that you're talking to. Be curious, ask them questions. Don't just start every email with like, hope you had a great weekend, you know, or some generic thing. Like be curious about what people are doing. Learn about their families, learn about their hobbies, learn about their dreams. And th these are the kind of things that over time, as you build them into your CRM, you can move to the third step, which is personalize and connect, which is, you know, I spend a lot of time reaching out to people it's like, oh, I found this article or I saw this video and thought you might like it. I didn't just randomly see that video. I spent time trying to find a video that I could send them and say that I saw in my newsfeed because I'm looking for an opportunity to touch base with them again or connect with them again. So looking for ways to get on people's radar, whether that's in their inbox or their DMs or whatever, um, with something that's going to add value to their day. So to the extent that you can add value to somebody else, they're going to leave with a net positive, right? Because they've just, you know, if they're really into like funny cat memes or they're, you know, really into whatever it is, whatever their thing is, it's about doing more of what, what they want want or need. Well, everything you're talking about, I, I know it sounds on the surface that it's about sales and to salespeople, but if, if you're listening to this and you're in a band or you're an artist, this all applies to every artist in terms of the communication that you're talking about, in terms of if I'm trying to get uh, signed by that A&R guy or something, uh, you know, if I'm a band manager and I'm trying, you know, find that flight that the guy is on or, or, or woman is on. Um, and then the, the acronym you just gave for super, that's all stuff for, for bands. Uh, so much communication is one-to-one -one communication between the artists and their fans now through DMing or whatever. So you can get to know your fans and you can, if you spend the extra time, you can do a bunch of these steps that you're talking about to create the super fan. The first time I ever met Taylor Swift, years before we worked together, she was like, I don't know, 17 or something. It was at an after party for the first award show where she, she'd ever won an award. And we were talking um, and she, 
she was there on a date with somebody that was an artist that I had worked with that I had become friends with over the years. So we're talking and her goal at that point was to get to half a million records. Um, Tim McGraw, I think was still the single. Um, and she was like, I want to have this gold record. And what somebody had told her that she said back to us that I was like, wow, to have this kind of focus and attention at 17, like this girl is going to be a freaking giant superstar. And of course she's become one of the biggest stars on the planet in our history. Um, she said, if I'm going to sell a half a million records, I need to meet half a million people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, shake half a million hands, talk to half a million people, make them care about me. And that's what you have to do, right? Like, and, and of course now today it's, it's not so much about selling albums, but, but it's the same thing. It's you want people to stream your music. You want people to buy your concert tickets. You want them to buy your merch. You want them to care about you, to follow you, to tell their friends. You've got to force them to care. There's so many things in this world constantly competing for our attention. Nobody in today's world wakes up with like a lack of things to do, right? Like there's no excuse for boredom these days. Like if you are bored, it is your own fault. There's no excuse in today's world. I'm going to get this stat wrong, but it's, it's like every so many months, there is more content that's created than in the entire history of mankind ever. Like there's constantly new content being created everywhere. There are constantly things pulling for your attention, begging for your attention. So if you are an artist, I think a lot of young artists make the mistake that, you know, they think it's just about the creativity for them. And it's like someone else's job to do the marketing. It's someone else's job to find them fans. If that is your attitude, you are never going to be successful. Mm -hmm. Your number one job is to make people care about your art. Your number one job is not to give them the art. It's to make them care because if people don't care about the art, then guess what? Nobody's going to hear your art, right? It's like screaming into a void. You've got to force people to care. And the way you do that is by connecting with them. So back to that super acronym, start with your story. You, if you can't articulate to me why I should care about you, then why should I care? Like I'm always so, so floored by the number of people in sales um, in, in, you know, on the corporate side, but also artists who can't tell me in like one sentence why I, I should care about them. What is their uniqueness? How are they different than everyone else out there that's like trying to be a new Americana artist or like trying to be a hip hop artist? Like, how are you different? What about your story is interesting? And your story is not your biography. Like, oh, you're from a small town and like now you're in a big city. So what, who cares? Guess what? So are a million other people. Like, what is it about your story that makes you unique? And if you don't know that, then everything else is gonna fail, right? It's like building the house on sand. You have no foundation from which people should care, right? You're just like another voice that's going to, you know, it's like people who go viral and then you never hear from them again. It's like, yeah, it's because we were entertained for like a second, but we didn't care about that person. You know, it's like the one hit wonders. Like we didn't care about them as an artist. We enjoyed that one thing. And that's why they go away because there's no foundation. It's, you know, lightning in a bottle. So start with your story. And then number two, understand your customer story. You've got to know inside and out what they want. Why should they care about you? What is it that's going to make the Venn diagram of like your circle and their circle overlap? Like, how are you connecting that? And then once you figure that out, that's when you can kind of like go deeper down the funnel with connecting and becoming the type of person that now, you know, people are like, oh, I do, I do want to subscribe to this artist. I do want to spend money with them. I do want to engage with their content on a more regular basis because I get it. I now can articulate to somebody where my story and their story overlap because that's what you've got to do. You've got to connect your story with their story. And until you do that, you're just another random thing that they're scrolling through on their newsfeed or their TV or whatever. That was a great thing also about uh, the one hit wonders because uh, a lot of artists get their song on a major playlist, but there are fans who are fans of the playlist. And so they're listening to the playlist. And so the artist gets a lot of streams, but um, I even have playlists that I listen to when I go running or whatever. And I know these songs in and out. I don't know who the artist is who does the song. I just know the song because I added it to a playlist. So it gets streams for me, but I, I feel horrible, but I'm not necessarily always a fan of that artist just because they're on a playlist. Well, and you don't have to feel horrible because it's that artist's job to make your hair. Mm -hmm. It's incumbent on the artist to write a song that's so good that it stops you in your tracks, literally. If you're running, you're stopping saying, I need to look at my playlist and see who this is because I immediately want to go check out their EP. This song is so good, I want to hear everything else they have, 
right? And I'm sure that there are instances when you've done that, when you've heard a song that was better than just, you know, good enough to be on that playlist where you're like, wow, I want to hear more from this artist. Well, it's funny, the digital work is the first time you're, you're a passive listener wherever and you hear it. So then I'll, I'll Shazam it. The first thing. Then the next thing is actually then listening to it. Because you can Shazam and be a hoarder and just collect Shazams. It doesn't necessarily mean unless you're adding it right then to a playlist that you have that you listen to, you may never listen to it again. So it also, it, it gives back to you. Marconi here has always been talking about exactly what you're talking about, turning a passive fan into an active fan or a fanatical fan. And right. that's sort of, by, I'm the Shaz- I Shazam a song, that's, while it's an, I'm taking a step and it's active at that moment, it's just a single action within multiple actions I would need to take in order to become a, a fanatical fan. Does that make sense? And what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you've got to look at every touch point as how does this connect back to my story? So once you know what you're all about, you have a filter that you can run every decision through. So your band photo, your single cover art, your album cover art, everything that people might see when they Google you or Shazam you or whatever needs to have a commonality in that through line because if not, people are gonna be confused. They're not gonna remember, right? Like if you think about artists who've broken out um, you know, something like a Lady Gaga, right? With her like crazy visual identity. That's not, that's not by accident. Like that's marketing, right? That's her saying, this is going to be part of what helps people remember me. So coming up with whatever your thing is, whatever it is that ties back to your story, how are you taking advantage of every single touch point, whether it's that tiny little album cover or single cover that's going to be in the playlist, whether it's what people see when they Shazam, like how are you making sure that everything is part of a cohesive story? Because if, if you confuse people, you've lost people. You've got to make it so easy for them to get it that they again can say like, oh, I understand how this now ties into me and I'm going to tell other people about it. Yeah. I like this artist because fill in the blank and my friend so-and-so would like them too. So I'm going to share. Like that's what you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to the point of taking in a, up enough mind share or attention for them to want to tell other people about it. So I've got to know, are you one of those people who Shazams and tries to get like the lowest number? Like what's your record for the lowest number of Shazams? What, what do you mean lowest number of Shazams? You know, like when you Shazam it and it'll say like, this song has been Shazammed like 1.4 million times. My husband, who's a music guy, he works at a label. He's always trying to get like the lowest number and he's got single digits a couple times. Like he's one of those guys who's really into music discovery or like every time we go to a Mexican restaurant um, or like any kind of restaurant where there's music, like not from the country playing, he's like, oh, let me Shazam this because it will be some like Russian artist with like 11 Shazams. And so he's always really excited when he's one of the first like 100 people to Shazam a song. So I was wondering if that's part of your, uh, you no, said sometimes but, it's easy to hoard Shazams. I was wondering if you paid attention to your like, I, Shazam record. No, but that sounds like actually a, a fun game. You know, that would be a great like uh, uh, on a bachelor party or something. People do a, uh, a scavenger hunts. Here's yeah. a, a Shazam hunt where you try who can get the lo- who can you know with the next hour Shazam the lowest number. That's actually pretty cool. I love it. That's a fun idea. I've got that's a couple great. of friends who work at Shazam, and every time every time my husband or I get something that's like under fifty, I'll usually post it and tag them and be like, "Look, I'm getting closer yeah. to I'm getting closer to one. One of these <laughs> days, I'm going to be the first person." Brittany, do you have any parting words for people who are listening to this, who uh, may be a young artist or somebody trying to get into the business, some nugget of, of inspiration for them? I would say decide what you want to do and then do it. Don't let anyone sidetrack you. Don't let anyone tell you differently. One thing that I wish I had learned earlier on was you know, you've only got so many hours in the day and the more you focus on other people's priorities, the less time you have for your own. So for a long time, I was very guilty of doing all of these other things that weren't leading to my number one goal. So now I know what my one-year goal is, my five-year goal and my 10-year goal for my career and for my family. And if something doesn't align with those goals, it's an automatic no. I don't give it time, energy, or attention because it's not getting me closer to those goals that I want to achieve this year, five years from now, 10 years from now. So I think if you haven't taken the time to define exactly what your goals are, personal and professional, short-term, medium-term, and long-term, you're going to keep wasting time and spinning your wheels and giving attention to things that aren't necessarily getting you on that path 
right? It's like a star and you're spiraling out in a lot of different directions instead of using all of your energy and momentum in one direction down one road. So once you figure out what it is and like you're 22 years old, maybe you don't know what your thing is yet and that's totally right. fine. But if right. you know, if you know, like I want to, you know, hit X milestone with my band this year, get signed by this label, do X, Y, Z, whatever, all of your time, energy, and attention needs to go into that goal because every minute you're doing something else is a minute wasted that could have taken you closer. And your competitors out there who are trying to get that same goal better believe a lot of them are super focused and spending all of their time to reach that end. And the word is spoken. And that was great. So thank you for getting us focused today. We're uh, clapping for you. Oh, thanks. And I'm clapping back to you guys. Oh, that's fair. And we accept your clap. Yes. So thank you very much. Jenna, thank you very much for bringing Brittany on. We really appreciate it. And Dr. Stabon, thank you very much for being on this radio show with us today. Oh, you too. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello. Dr. Stabon, what do we say at the end of every radio show and podcast that we've ever done in the history of America? Alvidaste. That's right. We say adios. Situation. You're losing hope, I'm losing patience